0: Well, so good to see you. Very warm welcome indeed to uh, this morning's congregation, and a very warm welcome to those who are joining us as well online this morning. It's uh, really great that you are with us today. I've got a question for you before we start. We're uh, today in Paul's letter again to the, the Ephesians, and it's our fourth study. And uh, we're going to be looking at the latter part of chapter 2 in a few moments' time. But I've got a question for you. Can any of you remember what happened on the 9th of November, 1989? 9th of November, 1989. Ah, yes, there's one person. Anybody else? Berlin Wall, Berlin Wall. yes. Is that what you were going to say, Tanya? Wall. That's right. The Berlin Wall which was the barrier between East and West Berlin from 1961 all the way through to 1989, erected by East Germany to prevent East Germans escaping to West Germany, was knocked down. And I remember the celebrations well. It was a wonderful time seeing those great scenes on our television sets back then. And during the 28 years of the, with the war's existence, Anyone who tried to escape from the east to the west was shot on sight, and many people were killed during that period. And where their bodies fell, um, the the West Germans erected crosses and placed wreaths um, in open defiance to the East German guards. If you had travelled to Jerusalem in the days of the Apostle Paul, you would have found another wall. It wasn't lined with machine gun turrets, it wasn't lined with barbed wire, but it was no less divisive. It was a low stone wall of three to four feet high, and it surrounded the Jewish temple. This wall divided the outer court of the temple, known as the Court of the Gentiles, from the inner court. And along this particular wall, there were a number of gates. They were placed in strategic positions and at the side of each gate, there was a warning written in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. And the warning read this. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will himself, will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. And that was a potent reminder of the massive divisions that existed in the ancient world. All non-Jews were excluded from worshipping God in the inner courts of the the Jewish temple. Yes, they could offer worship from afar, from the outside, from beyond the, uh, from, from the court of the Gentiles. But they were excluded from the community of God's people. They were outsiders. And to enter beyond those gates would have meant potentially them signing their own death warrant. Now, interestingly enough, that when Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, along with some other letters, he was writing under house arrest in Rome. And he was put under that arrest. What caused the arrest was that some time before he'd been in Jerusalem, and some of the Jews had believed, wrongly believed, by the way, that Paul had brought um, a Gentile man, a non-Jew by the name of Trophimus, beyond that wall. And it caused a riot, and that brought about Paul's arrest. The world in which we live in is full of divisions, isn't it? And I'm sure that we have seen so many divisions, even within our lifetimes, similar hostility in our world, hostility between Republicans and Orangemen in the Troubles, or so-called, in Northern Ireland between the Israelis and the Palestinians, between the uh, Hutus and the Tutsis in Central Africa, between the various factions in the Bosnian conflicts in the beginning of um, the 1990s, to name but a few. But in Paul's day, as far as the Jews were concerned, there were only two classes of people. There were the Jews who regarded themselves, we are God's people, we are special to God, chosen by him, and there was everybody else the Gentiles. And the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles was found throughout the pages of the New Testament. And I would suggest that it was the single most challenging problem for the early church, bringing about unity between these groups of people when there was previously hostility. The Jews in Jesus' day, for example, believed that they were the only nation loved by God and all other nations were hated by God. Pious Jews would daily thank God that he had not made them Gentiles. That was part of their daily routine of prayer. They also thanked God that he had not made them slaves or women, but we're not going there this morning, okay? (laughs) In Bible times, if a Jew returned to his homeland, he would pause at the border and brush off Gentile dust from his clothing. If a Jewish girl or boy married a Gentile, The Jewish family would hold a funeral service indicating that the one who had done this was considered dead by their family. But the hatred wasn't just one-sided. The Gentiles were not above persecuting the Jews either and wanting to wipe them off from the face of the earth. And history tells us that. Even in the time of Paul, it was the Roman armies who had come into the nation and made the people captive in their own land. And this was something that happened for many years before, 600 years before, in fact. Before the Romans, it was the Greeks. And before the Greeks, it was the Persians. And before the Persians, it was the Babylonians. So you can really understand why this hostility ran very, very deep indeed. Now, that was a bit of background, Okay. That's in order for us to try to understand what is happening in the passage that we are going to be studying today. So, if you've got your Bibles there, pick them up. You at home, please grab your Bible at the moment. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through to 22 this morning. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now, up to this point in the letter, for those of you who have joined us in past weeks, Paul has been telling us about the new life that we have in Christ, that God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He has told us about the grace of God and the mercy of God, this unconditional love which are ours. But Paul moves on now, and he talks not only about the wonderful new life that we have in Christ, but he also talks about us belonging to a new society. That new society is the church. The bride of Christ, the body of Christ, which is made up of recipients of God's grace, both Jews and Gentiles. And Paul calls this largely Gentile church at Ephesus to remember. To remember what they once were before they encountered Christ. And maybe the best word uh, for them to use as they describe their former state is the word without, without. Look at verse 12. Let's let's look at that together. First of all, they were without Christ. Paul says that they were separate from Christ. Now in this city of Ephesus, there were many gods and goddesses that were worshipped by the people. And the most famous of all was the goddess of fertility, Diana of the Ephesians. And the temple of Diana was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So first of all, we are told that they are without Christ. Secondly, they are without citizenship, excluded from citizenship in Israel, writes Paul. The Jewish people belonged. They were a nation over which God ruled. They were God's people. He was their God. They had that sense of destiny. And circumcision was the clear mark of God's ownership upon them. And the circumcised Jews would say to the Gentiles and they would call them the uncircumcised. That's the way that they would refer to them. And that was a terrible slur upon them. It was an insult really because essentially what they were saying is we have God's mark upon us which shows us to be God's own. We belong. We're not like these uncivilised barbarians. That's essentially what they were saying there. So the Gentiles were without Christ, without citizenship. We also read that they were without covenants in verse 12. Foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Now, if you read through the pages of the Old Testament, you will note on many occasions that God made his covenant with various people, with Noah, with Jacob, with Abraham, with um, Moses, with David. These were, uh, covenants were binding agreements that God would bless Israel. And would keep her safe against uh, invading armies as long as Israel kept her part in the bargain. And that was to remain faithful to God. And we know from history that time and time again they turned their backs on God. So they were without Christ, without citizenship, without covenants. And we're also told in verse 12 that they were without hope and without God. Archaeologists have dug up um, some remains of cemeteries from the first century Greek and Roman world, and often they, they found on tombstones the words, without hope, without hope. There was despair all around, without hope and without God in this world. And I suppose you could say that that could be said of many people today. So Paul is writing to this predominantly Gentile church, and he is saying, Remember what you were. Remember how it was for you. Remember you you, you were foreigners to all of this. But we Jews, we've got a history of God at work. Remember how it was for you. Remember that you were without hope and without God. And then comes verse 13. And I was saying last week about verse 4 as being one of the great verses in the Bible. Well, this is another one of those great verses. Verse 13. But now... Yeah, you, you sense a change of direction. But now, but but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. What a wonderful verse, isn't it? And that's our story as well. The Gentiles then and the Gentiles now, of which we are a part, were not permitted to go beyond the outer Boundaries, the outer courts of the temple, they were excluded. Spiritually, they were also far away. They were in darkness, they were without God and without hope. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, I so love those words. That is us. But now in Christ Jesus, our lives are so different, aren't they? And I think it's good for us as well to remember to look back how it was for us before Christ came into our lives. Not that we do this out of a sense of uh, beating ourselves up about our past, or somehow uh, being guilt-ridden I, – I, I don't mean that for a moment – but rather to acknowledge what God has done for us in Christ, and to recognise the difference that he has made to us who are in Christ. And I think it's a good thing to do, to remember. As I say in last week's study, we were told there at the beginning of chapter 2 that we were dead, we were disobedient, and we were doomed. We were all in spiritual darkness. Paul paints this picture of what we were before Christ. And then, as I say, comes out with this, probably one of the greatest verses in the Bible in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our transgressions. There have been many great peace missions uh, in this world. British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain uh, returned from conferences in Germany way back in 1938 and he came back to our country uh, stating that he had stopped Adolf Hitler in his tracks. And his famous message, Neville Chamberlain's famous message was, peace in our time, peace with honour, yet within one year. Germany had invaded Poland, and on the 3rd of September 1939, Britain was at war with Germany. In recent times, more recent times, there have been many, many other peace missions in our world, uh, or at least attempted peace missions. I don't know how many of you remember um, in 1993... Uh, think of those pictures of President Bill Clinton on the steps of the White House with a very nervous, insecure-looking President uh, Rabin of Israel and Yasser Arafat of the PLO. The hands shaking, but yet welcoming in this new dawn in the peace process. 1998 was another one, the Belfast Agreement, so-called the Good Friday Agreement because it was signed on Good Friday which brought peace in Ireland, and paved the way for the paramilitaries to put down their weapons. And the change has been significant. But not all peace treaties have been quite so successful. I was reading just the other day that between the years uh, 1500 BC and 850 AD, there were actually 7,500 peace treaties between various nations in the world. 7,500. And none of them lasted for more than two years. But Paul writes of one peace mission that didn't fail. And that's what this passage is all about. For we read in verse 14, let's pick it up in verse 14. For he, that's speaking of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with all its commands and regulations, Yes, he is. He really is. But what he is saying there is that Jesus broke down this dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. How did he achieve it? Well, he achieved it by abolishing the one thing that inflamed their hostility between these two groups. And that was the Jewish law. You see, the Jews really despised the non-Jews, the Gentiles, because the Jews regarded themselves as superior, We have the law of Moses. We have the right, true way of God. God is our God, he is not their God. They don't have the law, they are uncivilized. They live godless lives. And you can imagine this going on, can't you? Many of the Jews were looking down on the Gentiles with that stomach-churning air of moral superiority. Yes, the Jews were God's people, they were. But their job was to act as a light, God's light, to the Gentiles, to other nations, not despise them. They were set apart by God in order that they should bring God's love and God's light and God's truth to other nations, not boast about their own religious superiority. As you can well imagine, this didn't go down well with the Gentiles at all. and They hated the Jews even more. They despised everything about their law. But then, and this is where it gets good, but then in one master stroke, Jesus removed the very thing that separated them. And he helped them to see that both the religious Jews and the pagan Gentiles were at the same level. And they both needed his grace. And they both needed forgiveness. And the only way possible was through his blood. That's what we read here. There were two divided camps, Jews, Gentiles. Jesus created one new humanity, one new people, his church. No wonder Paul writes elsewhere that um, God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom. And when we go into chapter 3 next week and uh, Dan is speaking to us, we will come across a great verse which speaks of the church as the manifold wisdom of God. In other words, it's God's big idea, it's God's great idea. So, there's a lot of theology, a lot of explanation in that this morning, I recognize. But how does this therefore affect us today? What's our take home? What, what, are we, what is it that we get from this passage that touches something within us today? Well, firstly, Just as Paul instructs the Gentile Christians to remember what they once were, that they were separated from Christ, they were excluded from the covenants and citizenship, that they were without God and without hope in the world. But then compare it to what now they have become in Christ. I think that there's a challenge for us as well today to remember what we once were to what we have become. To remember all that God has done for us. To remember that we have been saved, not because of anything that we have done, but rather because of his mercy and his grace towards us. It is what he has done and the riches of his mercy. To remember that although we've been alienated from God, that we have now been reconciled through the blood of Christ. That we have been reconciled both to God and we have been reconciled to one another, and only God could do that. And as we remember what God has done for each of us through his grace, that will cause us to act and react and be different people in our world, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God, that we go around with an attitude of gratitude rather than one of moral superiority. And as we remember the peace which God has brought us with himself and one another, we will seek with all of our hearts to never rebuild those walls of hostility that God has broken down. One of the great privileges and pleasures of my life is that I am invited and have been over many years to conduct wedding services and um, they're always great fun and great times. Of uh, They're so lovely, aren't they? We all love going to a wedding. But I'm responsible for helping the, the couple through their vows. And then after the vows, there's that declaration. It's a great declaration where I say, those whom God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Or let no man separate. And at that point, the bride and the groom hear us a sigh of relief. Yeah, you know, we've got through this. But I think that those words in a wedding ceremony are so relevant in this context as well. Those whom God has joined together by his blood, through his grace, let no man separate. And for us to guard that unity that we have with all of our heart and strength. And let us remind remind ourselves... That there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. And the unity that we have in Christ transcends all other human divisions, whether they be divisions of gender or colour of skin or economics or age or intellect or sexual orientation or social status or ethnicity. God forbid that we should ever erect walls that Christ has torn down, to do so really would be uh, to contradict the message that he's entrusted to us, that message of reconciliation. We're not only called to share the message of reconciliation with our lips, but also to demonstrate it with our lives. Worship team, would you like to come back? And as you come back, I just want to finish off with the last few verses of this chapter very briefly. Briefly. Verse 19, Paul writes, consequently, you, and he's including all of us here today in that uh, you as well, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And I'm sure we're saying aloud, amen to those wonderful words. In verse 21 In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Now, our message to an unbelieving world is not a matter of thou shalt, thou shalt not, for God has not made us judge and jury. Our message to the world at large is God's grace. It's neither you nor we deserve God's love. Yet God in his mercy has sent his son to take our place that we might know forgiveness and that we might know freedom. You see, God's grace is our message. No conditions. Unearned acceptance. Gratis. And through grace we have received new lives in Christ, but also through grace, we have been joined together as one new society for which we thank God. No longer does God live in temples made of stone, but in us, his children, his church, his dearly beloved possession, and we give God thanks. And all God's people said, (laughs) Amen, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we give you thanks that though we were once alienated from you, we have been reconciled, reconciled to the Father and reconciled to one another through the blood of Jesus. And we thank you, Lord. Lord, we thank you that in you we have found new life, And we can belong to your people, your family, your bride. We thank you, Lord, for the unity that you have created amongst us. But we also celebrate our diversity. And we thank you for it, Lord. Lord, we pray that you might help us maintain the unity that you have brought amongst us. And that we might demonstrate your love to each other. And as we demonstrate that love, we pray, Lord that we might be declaring the love of a God who loves his humanity, loves his world. We pray this in your name. Amen.